If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. Hey, it's your host, Kamea Shane, and you're listening to Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to collective healing, ecological regeneration, and true abundance and wellness for all. As a community-powered show made possible by listeners like you, we are calling in your direct support starting at a gift of $2, which really adds up for us, to help us sustain and keep this show going. So if you're learning from and value these conversations, you can join our community at greendreamer.com support. And also, we just relaunched our weekly newsletter. So if you want our episodes, resources and recommendations sent to you, you can sign up at greendreamer.com. And now on to today's episode where we're speaking with Nick Estes. We should actually have collective rights, not just individual rights. We're not all... Uh, homo economicus, where we're all, you know, entrepreneurs and things like that. That's a capitalist mindset. That's a colonial mindset. And to really decolonize our understanding of sovereignty would be moving back to collective rights, moving back to ideas of nationhood that aren't based on exclusivity, but are based on mutuality and reciprocity. Nick is a member of the Lower Brule Sioux Tribe. He is a historian, journalist, and author of Our History is the Future, Standing Rock versus the Dakota Access Pipeline, and the long tradition of indigenous resistance. Nick also co-hosts the Red Nation podcast, which I highly recommend checking out. And he begins here by sharing about his roots and his earliest inspirations to become a historian and writer. I was born and raised in a place called Chamberlain, South Dakota, which is on the Missouri River, but also it's about 20 miles south of the nearest reservation, which is Crow Creek Indian Reservation. And that's right across the river from the place where I'm enrolled, which is the Lower Burrow Sioux Tribe. My mom is white and my dad is an enrolled member of the Lower Burrow Sioux Tribe. I had the kind of fortunate opportunity to live near um, my dad's family and, and really thinking about how I grew up knowing I was Native and knowing I was Lakota, but also having that kind of class experience of coming from a working class background. You know, I lived in a trailer park for most of my life in Chamberlain, South Dakota, which is a border town. And that's a term that is used to describe the white dominated settlements that ring Indian reservations. 
and there's a lot of kind of racial discrimination that happens, but also criminalization. But nonetheless, the place I was born and raised is a very beautiful place. It's a very large river. I hold it, you know, near and dear to my heart, and it informs a lot of the things I write about. What I've noticed surfacing more and more in the recent years are sort of alternate narratives of history that center marginalized perspectives. So, for example, the general public is becoming more aware of what some people call truth-giving or the real historical context behind Thanksgiving that is much different than what a lot of us have learned growing up. And I don't think it's a surprise anymore to most people that a lot of what we learn in quote-unquote U.S. history classes centered on a specific white colonial lens and experience of those that got to shape the narratives of what happened. But there always seems to be a lot of pushback when the sort of more marginalized stories of our past are being told. So as a historian, why do you think truth-seeking to simply better understand our past has become so contentious and political? Because I feel like we can have different opinions and feelings, but there's still sort of a common truth or as close to it as possible that I think most people can handle and just want to learn and know. The Dakota scholar Elizabeth Cooklin, who was actually born and raised not too far from where I was born and raised, but is, you know, obviously much older than I am. She once said that there are no two sides to this story. And I take that to heart, meaning that just because we were colonized by the United States, which is a white supremacist empire, doesn't mean that we've necessarily internalized that perspective or that U.S. national narrative. And in fact, many indigenous people and their histories form the trunk of the tree of history of this land. And in many ways, the United States is a branch of that tree, but it's a covetous branch that thinks it's the actual tree. And so we're not writing from a marginal perspective. We're not writing from the margins because this is something that Lakota people, Dakota people have already known. And it's the way we've, we've told our own history. And you can look back at the historical evidence and things such as winter counts, which are kind of pictographs that the Lakota people kept on hides to tell stories. And each year was, or each winter, they used a different symbol or a different picture as a mnemonic device to kind of retell a significant event that happened that particular year. And many of the you know still existing winter counts detail the history of the 19th century. And what you'll notice in those histories is there's not a lot of references to the United States. Even though there was definitely intense wars of extermination and violence that the United States was inflicting on our people, but we didn't, you know, we didn't see the United States as the, as the center of our world. And so I think there is a form of American exceptionalism or U.S. exceptionalism to say that the U.S. national narrative is the narrative, which is completely, you know, it flies in the face of how Lakota or the Ocheti Shakoi understood itself in relation to this very covetous nation, you know, it's a very narcissistic nation. And so in that sense, it's, I'm not really doing anything radical from the perspective of Lakota historiography. It may be radical to a nation state that has tried to wipe us out. And we see that playing out currently in a state 
like South Dakota, where I was born and raised, where you have Christy Nome, who is a Trump troglodyte, attempting to not only enforce a specific kind of political order that is against indigenous sovereignty, but also currently trying to wipe out indigenous people from the curriculum, the public school curriculum. And it's been admitted by the state and the Board of Education and the Board of Regents that at no levels does the public school system teach something like critical race theory. But nonetheless, the state itself, uh, with the leadership of Christy Nome, has waged a relentless war to revise that curriculum, to even remove references of Native people, right? Because according to that logic, if there aren't settlers, there is no history, right? Mm. <laughs> and that's kind of the the way that this, you know, this country has functioned. I mean, the former political uh, CNN commentator, Rick Santorum, said at a convention that, you know, essentially the settlers, the white European settlers who came here brought history. And there was nothing that existed here before. And that like native people made no meaningful contribution to what we know as US history or culture. I don't actually disagree with what he's saying in the sense that he's actually speaking a truth that a lot of people believe in this country. A lot of rich and powerful people believe in this country. It doesn't mean that people can't understand the contradictions of this nation state and how it was built on genocide. I think if most people did understand that, they would question the current path that this country is on. But the battle for the integrity of this land really boils down to how we understand history and where we're going. And the kind of current efforts that are underway, like, yeah, Trump may be out of office. You know, we may, we may have like a different flavor of a settler government, but nonetheless, it's still a settler government in the way it behaves towards Native people, in the way it behaves towards our histories. You know, on one hand, we still have the right-wing state governments waging this war against the boogeyman of critical race theory and erasing any kind of alternative telling of the, of the founding of this country. But then on the other hand, we have people like Biden who has literally sat on his hands for the, the majority of the construction of the Line 3 pipeline, which is going through Dakota and Anishinaabe territory. He's been applauded. His administration has been applauded for stopping or canceling once and for all the Keystone XL pipeline, which is a huge accomplishment. That's 270,000 barrels of oil a day that have been taken out of circulation. It's a huge blow against the fossil fuel industry coming from native people who are the, the vanguard of the most confrontational arm of the environmental movement. But Joe Biden, much like Obama, has said nothing about Dakota Access Pipeline, which is in the premise of my book. Obama didn't really do much to stop that from happening and to stop the police terror against indigenous water protectors. Biden has not stopped the police terror against indigenous water protectors at line three. And in fact, his domestic policy advisor once had at, at the beginning of her appointment, 
$2.7 million invested in Enbridge, which is the company, the Canadian oil company that's building the Line 3 expansion project. And so how, how much of a radical departure is the Biden administration from the Trump administration in terms of we're fighting two fronts still under Biden that we were under Trump, the oil and gas industry and the very kind of epistemology of how this country understands itself and the constant erasure that Native people find themselves in. Yeah. I think that a lot of people who have gone through the formal educational institutions have internalized American exceptionalism to the point where learning about these histories that Native peoples have known is sort of like a challenge to their personal identity. And so it may spark a lot of discomfort for people, but it's also necessary because it is a part of truth-seeking. And to this point of how there's often a manipulation of how reality is framed, you say that invasion is always made to look like self-defense. Can you expand more on this with some examples and address this point often being made that unless you're providing a balanced story, like balancing the two sides of a conflict, then you're not credible because you're biased? Right. Yeah, I think that's really funny because it's like, imagine trying to balance, I don't know, this is an absurd comment. So maybe it's maybe a little reductive, but nobody would be like, well, we should actually try to find the logic in Hitler's, you know, (laughs) extermination campaign. I don't, I mean, we should find the logic in that, but why do we have to balance that against the stories of his victims? Like, that's absurd. Like, that's the most absurd notion. Like, that's, that's actually, that's not even scholarship. That's just, I don't know what that is. That's, that's just propaganda, right? Imagine finding, like, actually, we should get the Nazi perspective. We should actually profile neo-Nazis and give them a platform so we have a balanced perspective. Like, that's, that's an absurd notion. And it's always used, I mean, it, it's, it's always used as kind of a, a cudgel against people who are trying to write these histories, such as myself. But if you actually look in practice, like I just mentioned, the state of South Dakota is actually silencing our side and actually like doing the exact thing that it says it's trying to work against and providing balanced narratives, right? Or the the buzzword five years ago was political or ideological diversity. <laughs> when when in fact we see the outcome of it, like they, they always say, oh, the left is trying to cancel such and such person. When in fact the right has is the epitome of cancel culture, right? Mm, or freedom of speech. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the you know the the other the other part of that is to you know to understand that white supremacy first and foremost controls white people and their behaviors and thoughts, right? And they are the primary targets of it. It's mm. not about whether you know we internalize it to some degree, but by and large. It's about controlling their behaviors, right? And so that's their primary target is to convince the white checkout clerk at Walmart that has something in common with a billionaire like Trump or, you know, like with a liberal <laughs> elite like uh, Joe Biden. And when in fact they, they don't have anything in common, they're completely from two different class backgrounds. So you can't actually talk about the racial politics or the colonial politics of this country with also without talking about class 
and how the main ideological war that's being waged by the right and to a large degree the the liberal kind of elite of this country is to maintain those class disparities and to not actually fundamentally change anything right you can you can say on on the one hand yeah that the right will you know use white supremacy as a unifying tool across class difference against uh, people of color and colonized people and indigenous people and black people sure but what's the what's the alternative coming from the liberal elite it's identifying one's like individual white privilege or individual white guilt and it's like okay so you understand that we live in a racist society and you feel bad about it and you do a diversity training on it but there's still native people whose lands are under constant threat by oil pipelines who are being invaded by the oil and gas industry, you know, there's still not clean drinking water in Flint to this day, you know? So it's like, you can't eat ideology at the end of the day. It has to be betrust by an actual class politics because people need, everyone needs housing, right? It's not just native people. Native people may be overrepresented in, in terms of the need for housing or clean drinking water, or the, you know, the effects of joblessness on reservations or in inner cities. But at the end of the day, the, the demands that they're, that they're making, whether it's for clean drinking water, whether it's for a healthy environment, those are universal class demands. And so that's something that I think white supremacy is a fear-based ideology. And while it uses the specter of race or critical race theory, what it's actually talking about is preventing a certain kind of class politics from arising in this country. Yeah, certainly a lot of the surface level culture wars or cultural shifts that a lot of the liberal left is attempting to drive that really needs to be substantiated with changes in material conditions that can actually address the structural injustices and racism. And just in this past year of 2021, there are a lot of stories of the mass graves of First Nations children in the boarding schools of what is now known as Canada. These stories have made a lot of headlines and shocked a lot of people who have not been exposed to this history, or at least in such a tangible way. And whenever another story emerges, there are always some people saying, you know, just wait until the U.S. government begins to conduct similar research into its own past. I wonder if you ha you have any insights as to whether this work is and will be done and what impact uncovering more of this history might have. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission which the work of that began in Canada in response to a class action lawsuit filed by hundreds of boarding school or residential school survivors, did about an eight-year survey in looking at the numbers from the residential schools, right? They identified, I believe, 139 residential schools in Canada and over the course of eight years, they did, you know, eight, six or eight years, depending on who you count or how you count it. But they did do several years of testimony where they went into communities and boarding school survivors were given a space. You know, they, they provided like tissues, they provided culturally competent psychiatric and psychological help for people who are going through emotional distress while recounting the horrors of rape, abuse, death, beatings, you know, that was going on in these schools. 
And there, you know, the, the Canadian government spent millions of dollars advertising this, investing into it and doing this kind of research. And in many ways, you know, it was led by indigenous people. There was a careful analysis of it, the outcome of which can be debated because it still kept in place the colonial relation. Like there are still pipelines that are being built. Some of them are Canadian owned by the government itself. So the outcome of which is up for debate. And, you know, the Wet'suwet'en matriarchs at the beginning of the pandemic in uh, last year, right before it was announced and there was, you know, the, the massive shutdowns in the States and Canada began a hashtag that read reconciliation is dead and began shutting down rail sites throughout Canada and, you know, costing millions of dollars to the, the Canadian industries. That's a whole nother story. But in the context of the United States, it's important to remember that there were 139 identified residential schools in Canada. There are over 350 mm. boarding schools in the United States. And in fact, at the height of the off-reservation boarding school system in the United States, Canada sent its priests and its Indian agents down to a place called Carlisle Industrial School to reproduce the successes, quote unquote, of that experiment in the Canadian context. And so there was a relationship between the residential school system as it was implemented in, in Canada as the one in the United States. Now, there is a lot of horror around the kind of initial discovery of these mass graves. And the first one was 215 children. You know, it's, it's very macabre to count the number of graves, but that number is, you know, well over 5,000 right now. But we have to ask ourselves, why was it that 215 children made the headlines, but not 5,000 where we're at right now? And it's because of the nature, not only of Canadian media, but US media, that we're only allowed a certain amount of attention when there's an atrocity, right, that happens. And this stuff takes long, uh, long periods of discussion, of debate, of careful, meticulous research. Me, for example, you know, I, I don't consider myself a boarding school expert, but I became one by default because my family, you know, large, a lot of my family members went to boarding school, Catholic run boarding school. I did a story through High Country News that took me over a year to research and write because of the subject matter of it, it was very difficult. There's, you know, when you're dealing with children, it's, it's a whole nother story. But what really shocked me was the immense amount of not only death and violence, but the immense amount of what is not known and documented about these schools. The National Archives for the United States doesn't even have accurate records the National Native American Boarding School Healing Coalition did a FOIA request through the Bureau of Indian Affairs about boarding schools and the students. And the records are so shoddy that the Bureau of Indian Affairs didn't even know. And so the research on these schools is being done by independent journalists, you know, an individual academic or a nonprofit that you know, began in 2013, the or NABs, or the early 2010s, I should say, with a, with a budget of $5,000 a year. Mm -hmm. And for Deb Holland, who's the Secretary of Interior, the first Native woman to occupy that position, to say that 
we're going to do a federal investigation is, is, is amazing. I think that's a huge step in the right direction. But what really didn't make the news cycle is that she said she wanted the final report done by April of next year. That's less than nine months, mm. you know, from the initial time that she um, said that the investigation t- should take place. But it also raises several other questions. I don't have the, the time to get into all of them, but I will say that a good portion of these schools were run by the church, by churches, I should say, and faith groups, the largest of which would be the Catholic Church, who is not subject to these kind of open record requests. And I know this uh, because I've, I've worked with several Catholic studies scholars and trying to understand the scope of Catholic Indian boarding school abuse against Native children. And these schools have covered it up. They've created laws, like in places like South Dakota, where I'm calling from, that have raised statute of limitations that prevent civil actions against the church itself. And it's not just about suing the church and getting monetary compensation, which they should. You know, I agree with that. But it's about putting this on the public record. And it's important to remember that it was a civil action. It was a class action lawsuit in Canada that resulted in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. But states like the state of South Dakota have written legislation that was actually written by the church to prevent these kinds of lawsuits from coming forward and to prevent them from entering into the public record and the public conversation about boarding schools. So while on one hand, I'm hopeful about the the efforts to do further investigations, I'm also very skeptical about what this is gonna actually mean I mean, when we do get the the mic, so to speak, we have to really capitalize on it. But pe- are people really paying attention? Are policymakers really paying attention? Do they really care? I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't really think so. You know, the U.S. operates kind of like according to Groundhog's Day, where Indigenous people are Bill Murray. When we wake up knowing that the day has changed and that we remember the past, but everywhere around us. You know, every person we meet, it's like the same day over and over again, right? And it's on repeat. And it doesn't matter if it's a Democrat or a Republican, because that's the kind of ideology that we face. Yeah, it certainly seems like a lot of, quote unquote, actions being taken end up being performative and mm-hmm. not actually leading to deeper transformations. And I'm sure this is a delicate subject, and I want to first clarify that I don't think religious institutions are one and the same as necessarily the religious beliefs themselves or certainly the people who practice faith in those ways. But I'm interested in in hearing you talk about this through a decolonial lens because from my understanding, the majority of Native American households identify as being Catholic, with indigenous spirituality being the least prevalent. And so... How do you think Native communities reconcile the harms inflicted upon them from the church through these abusive colonial institutions that may still be present today in different forms, while knowing that the religion wouldn't have been here, or at least this widespread, without those forces? Yeah, um, first of all, I'll just say I'm not a Christian. I like lost you know, my faith, as they say. Uh, I think when I was in high school, I was going through... I was Episcopalian. My grandfather was Episcopalian, you know, and he was really involved in the church. And I I remember talking to one of my uncles about this, and he said that um, 
the reason why they translated, you know, the Bible and some of the songs and hymns into Lakote Api was to retain the language and to also to pray to our God, you know, under the, the cover of the church itself. And there was kind of a syncretism that happened. I, I'm not, you know, I'm not an expert on the kind of esoteric nature of Lakota spirituality, but I do know that we didn't have like monotheism as we know it in the in the in the church itself. But nonetheless, over time, there's kind of been a syncretism of that spiritual what passes as like Lakota spirituality. It didn't come out of that, you know, colonization process unscathed or unchanged and that's how mm -hmm. culture works but regardless of whether or not one holds a certain spiritual belief that's completely different from the power structure of an institution that is operating on behalf of a colonial kind of mission and you know it's important to point out that the catholic church the church itself the churches themselves i should say were given civilization funds beginning in at least 1814 by the federal government to colonize uh, and convert native people and this continued on was continues on actually well into today there's still remaining catholic indian boarding schools there's no doubt in my mind that they get federal funding because you know the education systems and the catholic church specifically has changed its mission so that it can get federal funding at one point in time you know, it convinced tribes to essentially turn over treaty annuities for education to the, the the Catholic Church themselves, so that they could do the education. Right later on, in the Johnson O'Malley funds um, that were allocated under Indian reorganization in 1935, they specifically didn't allow for faith-based education to get educational funding. However, the church itself. And it's, you know, and the way it was thinking was like, oh, well, we could still get this money if we just say we're doing, quote unquote, care work. And so they, they got federal funding for that for their schools. And now, of course, you know, there's Title IX and Title VII monies that they get that they're eligible for. So these, even though there's supposed to be a separation of church and state, you know, they're still getting federal funds for the civilization project without having to be, I'm not opposed to that, like per se because they are doing an educational service, but you're not accountable for the, all the awful things you did to native children in the name of those services. And so that's, that's where I differ. I don't, I'm not, I don't care if somebody's a Christian or not. Like it's not my experience. I'm not here to judge, but what I'm talking about is power, you know, who has it and who doesn't and who has the power to actually rectify this injustice. Yeah. I also wonder whether Native nations generally have a different conception of sovereignty than the U.S. or settler colonial governments do, and whether the definition of quote-unquote sovereignty and self-determination have been watered down by the settler system. So just furthering everything we've been talking about, what have been some examples as to the history of how Native peoples have become forced to be reliant on the reservation system and cash economy, both controlled by the colonizing government, which might show that tribal nations having these limited spaces marked as reservations is far from what Native peoples may dream as sovereignty and its own subsistence economies. That's a really complicated question. <laughs> it I mean, it requires volumes of books to be written about it, but I'll just focus on one aspect of that. 
And that's the Marshall Trilogy, which is a, a series of Supreme Court decisions that were decided concerning the removal of the five civilized tribes of the Cherokee Nation from the South for the benefit of you know white settlers who wanted their land. And it's important to point out that you know the Cherokee Nation, the five civilized tribes, were slaveholding tribes as well. They enslaved African people. And that's what earned them the quote unquote title of civilized because they basically, you know, had parity with white people in terms of the enslavement of African people. But they also had printing presses. They also had, you know, a newspaper, uh, a three branch government system, all those kinds of things. And so for all intents and purposes, they had their own language, you know, and they were their own nation. And that was the kind of legal challenge that John Marshall kind of confronted as a chief justice at that time. And he coined the term, one of the decisions of domestic dependent nations, which is complete contradiction in terms. How can you be a domestic dependent nation? <laughs> you know, it's mm -hmm. like yeah. either, either are you are you aren't a nation. Mm -hmm. And that was further based on the idea of the doctrine of discovery, which is a 15th century papal bull that said, you know, non-Christian nations, uh, which is, you know, later changed to non-European nations, don't have the same rights of discovery as those coming from Europe. Therefore, they're not fully human. Therefore, they don't have full property rights. And so, in fact, Native people were never considered property holders, per se. They were just considered mere occupants of land. But later on, and this is the weird contradiction, Later on, we became property holders when it came time to sell our land, right? Because <laughs> mm -hmm. we have to, and that's how like property is embedded in this. But nonetheless, I would say that the Marshall Trilogy really imbues federal Indian law with a theocratic tradition based on white supremacy. And it's, a, it's like in the times of feudalism, right? And so the United States federal Indian law is holding on to a feudal system of, of rule over native people in our lands. The idea of, of sovereignty is confined within that feudal system of rule that the real quote unquote nation is the United States. And we're just kind of satellite branches of it. We have as much power as municipalities in that kind of legal framework. If we do, and the U S can get rid of us at any time it wants to, that's not sovereignty. That's just colonialism, right? Mm -hmm. And but that doesn't mean that the United States holds a monopoly of definition or articulation of what sovereignty is or what it can be for us. And you know, there's 565 different versions of it in the United States. I can't speak for all of them, but I would say that in practice, settler sovereignty is based on exclusivity that there can only be one right? It's like the freaking Highlander. <laughs> um, whereas Native nations, at least historically, uh, many Native nations have practiced one based on plurality, that sovereignty and governance was determined by diversity and not by exclusivity, solely exclusivity. It's not to say that, you know, we should return to some kind of, you know, fake past or romantic past, but it's to understand that we still have alive in our political traditions, one of pluralism and plurality that you actually see being practiced in other countries like Bolivia. It's a plurinational country, whereas liberal democracy is one that is 
homogenous. It doesn't allow for heterogeneity, especially under a settler system. And so it's not to say that we're without examples, contemporary examples, like in places like Bolivia or Ecuador, even with the, you know, given their faults, it's not a perfect system. It's something that they're trying to work against that colonial kind of homogenous system of liberal democracy that there can only, you know, that we're all individuals and rights bearing citizens without understanding the collective nature of nationhood, right? That we should actually have collective rights, not just individual rights. We're not all uh, homo economicus where we're all, you know, entrepreneurs and things like that. That's a capitalist mindset. That's a colonial mindset. And to really decolonize our understanding of sovereignty would be moving back to collective rights, moving back to ideas of nationhood that aren't based on exclusivity, but are based on mutuality and reciprocity. Yeah. And this statistic that we share a lot on the show, which speaks to the importance of centering Indigenous leadership and supporting Native sovereignty and cultural revitalization is that Indigenous peoples make up 6.2% of our global population, but steward over 80% of Earth's biodiversity. And this, of course, is pretty intuitive and should make sense in that Native communities have ancestral relationships with their ancestral landscapes and have traditional ecological knowledge and place-based knowledges and languages of what it means to care for specific bioregions. But at the same time, as we've shared today, so much of Native lifeways and knowledges and forms of social and kinship organizing have been disrupted by settler colonialism. So through your lens, but maybe narrow down to the North Americas, though I'm sure we can find these patterns around the globe, but how much of native languages and knowledges tied to ancestral lands, which are critical for healing our planet, have been lost? And besides just the knowledge piece, how much of the ways of social governance have also been transformed and are just, as we said, incompatible with the settler colonial system? The way I think about it is in terms of how the indigenous culture was created from the basis of a non-capitalist mode of production. That, you know, the aspirations became to live, an attempt to live in correct relations. And, you know, again, it's not to romanticize the past. There were issues, you know, we, like any society, we were on a path of development that we were knocked off, right? Because of invasion because of imperialism because of capitalism and so what happened with the, the assimilation process which is simply genocide and colonization was a replacement of that non-capitalist mode of production from which arose our language how we identify as kin you know through kinship terms our ceremonies our belief systems uh, as part of that you know superstructure our laws our values everything like that at the core of that was you know, the material aspect of how we actually lived in the real world and the, and the natural environment with other human beings, with other living things, and how we interacted with them. You know, whether we were coercive, whether there was reciprocity among various parties, whether they're human or non-human, those are all complicated things, right? And that core of the non-capitalist mode of production of how we ate, how we bathed ourselves, how we reproduced, both physically and socially, was destroyed by killing off not just Native people, but our food sources, such as the Buffalo Nations, and putting us onto reservations, making us dependent on rations, redefining our political authority to one of domestic dependency to the United States, 
But at the core of it is that is that capitalist mode of production and saying that this way of life, the profit motive, holds you know sway over all these other aspects. But nonetheless, people still retained the values, the non you know the non capitalist values that are uh, that are in integrated. And so when we talk about you know the statistic that you brought up about protecting biodiversity there are still forms of labor that protect these waterways that protect these landscapes whether they're mountains whether they're rivers whether they're you know grasslands that's a form of labor and if we think about it in terms of like the line 3 protests or the protests at standing rock people were protecting their way of life to live how they want to on that land and to reproduce themselves on that land itself, whether it's socially or biologically. And they were setting up pickets, right? And union, unionized pipeline workers were crossing those pickets daily. As we are recording this, you know, unionized pipeline workers are crossing the pickets mm-hmm. that Native people are setting up to protect not just their land and way of life, but, you know, the future of this planet. They're crossing those pickets today. And that's, I guess that's the way I think about it, is that this is a, a, a valuable form of, of labor that not only benefits, you know, Native people, but it's for everyone. And then at the, other, the other aspect of it, too, is looking at the percentage of Native folks who live in Canada and the United States in the North American context above the U.S.-Mexico border and how many various carbon you know and oil and gas infrastructure projects that these native communities are challenging it accounts for about a quarter of carbon emissions coming from Canada and the United States so how is it that native folks are at the front lines of the most confrontational arm of the environmental movement in challenging these oil and gas projects and defeating them, like defeating the Keystone XL pipeline, is, is major. But yet, when it comes to thinking about a future of this planet, maybe beyond capitalism, we're the last to be considered. <laughs> when we're literally living in the future, we're trying to get everyone else to join. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, as we look ahead, many people in the green movement will have heard of the Green New Deal, which Mm -hmm. we have critiqued on the show before as something that still pretty much works within and even reinforces this extractive system and the global power dynamics rather than attempting to transform its foundations and its underlying presumption of infinite economic and material growth. And I know the Red Nation has published and proposed this vision for the Red Deal. Can you introduce what this is to our listeners and share how it goes, how it calls for going beyond electoral politics and the current U.S. governing institutions in the forms that they are in today? Back in 2011, there was a historic gathering in Cochabamba, Bolivia, that many people from North America also attended, where they drafted and adopted what are known as the People's Accords, and talking about a new climate justice policy. The rights of nature actually came from these gatherings that we now know, and they were based on social movements, not just, you know, domestic policy coming from the imperialist nations of the North. And they called for, they said, if the United States, 
specifically, let's just use the United States as an example, has so much surplus wealth that it can spend all this money, almost a trillion dollars as it is today, on the military. And it can have a police force that's larger than the standing army of China. Then it can it has surplus wealth that it can give back to the rest of the world in terms of its outsized role in pumping carbon into the atmosphere that disallows other countries to follow the same path of development. That is a very compelling idea. And that's like, you know, that's a decade old, like it's 10 years on. And what's happened in the North is the, the Green Movement has adopted a, a platform that's based on, you know, Thomas Friedman's ideas of structural adjustment in the United States without fundamentally changing the imperialist nature of this country at the expense of who, you know, expense of native people. Yeah, for sure. Because if we look at even Biden's renewable energy transition plan, he wants to electrify the federal fleet, which I think is a noble endeavor. But at the same time, it's like, where, where do those components for these vehicles come from? Where do the components for rechargeable batteries come from? They have to come from somewhere. The copper wiring that they use in renewable technologies at this point in time cannot be recycled copper. It has to be from iron ore. It has to be mined out of the earth. Where's the United States going to get this copper ore? One place that three administrations have targeted the Obama administration, the Trump administration, and now the Biden administration is a place called Oak Flat, which is a sacred site to the San Carlos Apache nation. And this is part of the strategic minerals plan that Obama, Trump, and Biden have all articulated in competition you know, with the quote-unquote great powers of, of this world to essentially wean the United States off of green renewable minerals or metals coming from specifically China or specifically other countries that the United States may have whatever political difference with. This is the same strategy that Obama implemented with his American energy independence policy, which fast-tracked fracking in 2008 from 2006 when the United States became a net producer of oil. So the Green New Deal as it stands right now is simply rearranging the deck chairs, right, <laughs> on a sinking ship. And I think what the Red Deal has proposed and where it takes inspiration from is that Cochabamba Accord, that Cochabamba meeting in Bolivia, and understanding that we have to think beyond just maintaining levels of consumption uh, and redefining what it means to live a good life, not according to consumption, but to adequate living, things such as housing, education, and that there are surplus pockets of wealth that are being used to, you know, like going back to the police and the military that can be divested from. But that's that's not going to happen from a top-down approach, right? It's going to take social movements to actually push those kinds of change. And as we say, we you know, as we say, it's from below and to the left. It's, it's always been the kind of motor of history. That history has not ended. It's it's continuing and it's being fought over right now. And there are alternative visions that exist beyond just, you know, maintaining the hegemony of the United States and its position as a quote unquote world power. And the last thing I'll say about that is if we look at Earth Day, 
historically, Bolivia has, and, and its indigenous movements have led the United Nations Earth Day events and looking at and critiquing the way that the first world nations, you know, the North Atlantic powers consume their lion's share of resources at the expense of the rest of the world. And because of the coup, the U.S.-backed coup against Evo Morales, but also against that, that indigenous project that was happening in Bolivia in 2019, Bolivia, under the Anya's government, who was you know, backed by a military coup and the United States, withdrew Bolivia from the Earth Day events at the United Nations. So who filled in the Earth Day events this year? It was the United States. Mm-hmm. Primarily, it was Biden. And what was his portfolio for change? It was the Teslas. It was the Elon Musks. You know, it was bringing in the billionaires like Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos. You know, who, you know, Jeff Bezos consumed. Like I, I can't remember the exact statistic, but you and I probably try to recycle, right? We probably try to live, <laughs> take shorter showers, and do all those things, which makes is like a drop in the bucket. You know, it's like feeding a Tic Tac to a whale when compared to the amount of carbon that Jeff Bezos used just to spend six, you know, six seconds in space or whatever it was. So that's the vision on, you know, that's the alternative that the Biden administration is putting on offer. It's strategic mineral resources and billionaires are the, are the forefront of the so-called green revolution that's happening right now. And we can't cede that territory or that ground to them. Social movements do have to move in a way that appeals not just to um, the the powers that be, but actually challenges them and tries to inaugurate a hero creation from below. Yeah, it definitely feels like the dominant or mainstream environmental movement is heading in the direction of just quote unquote greening capitalism and greening mm-hmm. this extractive system and just replicating exploitation and extraction in new forms outsourcing pollution, outsourcing destruction to historically marginalized communities. Um, And I definitely think that this movement would benefit a lot from taking a step back to understanding the role that U.S. and global imperialism plays in continuing to centralize power and the role that power or oppressive power plays in continuing to further our climate crisis and biocultural diversity loss and so forth. So we can't really heal our planet without looking at all of this through the lens of power. And the final thing I wanted to um, touch on is you share about how indigenous peoples are post-apocalyptic nations within the context of the Anthropocene, which I'm aware is a word you don't love, but what do you mean by indigenous peoples as post-apocalyptic nations and how might this offer us a portal or a path into the future beyond nearly everything that most people know today. One of my Paiute friends, Kristen Simmons, she calls it the Manthropocene because there's always like a bunch of dudes <laughs> writing about it. But um, yeah, that's it's it's like it's not a very helpful term. I think the you know as we're recording, there's an IPCC report that just came out, and a lot of news stories were covering it and talking about how the IPCC report says that human activity, you know, quote in scare quotes, is a cause is the main driver of of climate change 
And it's like, that's a universal application of like, oh, all humans are responsible. And it, it's, it kind of misses the, the point that it's like, well, there's actually industries, you know, there's 20 companies that are responsible for 30% of global emissions. Like, how is that a universal issue? How is that everyone's responsibility? You know, the, the fact that a lot of us have to consume oil or emit carbons just to go to work is not necessarily our fault, right? If that's how we're trying to feed ourselves and survive, that's not democratic because there's one economic system that's deciding deciding that for us, deciding the essentialness of a fossil fuel economy. You know, the, the final, you know, the kind of final analysis of this all, when you talk about being post-apocalyptic, I would say that not all apocalypses are unwelcome. And I'm reading this book by Robin Maynard and Leanne Betasamoge uh, Simpson. And you know, Robin Maynard's a, a theorist of from Canada, has done a lot of work organizing with the Black Freedom Movement. And uh, Leanne Simpson is you know somebody who's who's an Indigenous theorist, kind of writing from that perspective. And they were talking about you know in these kind of epist- epistolary. I think is that that's how you say it when you write letters back and forth to each other. Yeah. Um, uh, it's a the it's a post apocalyptic epistol epi, I can't even. It's say okay. It. Um, <laughs> I can't um, say it either. Yeah, and so they were writing these letters back and forth, like in the midst of the George Floyd uprisings, and they were talking about how you know the world that we want to live in between Black and Indigenous movements has already are always been under construction uh, in opposition to what poses itself as the only alternative. And we're seeing the cracks in that system right now. And we're seeing it being exposed that it can't even sustain life for its, you know, its greatest adherence, right? That the, the, the contradictions and the, the kind of extremes, whether it's the extremes of inequality, it seems as if temperatures are increasing alongside the, the daily inequality that we experience uh, is not sustainable, you know, even for the the adherence of the system itself. I mean, why do you think people are trying to go to space? <laughs> you know, they're yeah. trying to escape while the rest of us are set here to live. And so, you know, apocalypse isn't always a bad thing if we are seeing the end of, of that system, the kind of system of death, and hopefully a more just and life-based system will take its place, you know, and to use the Zapatista framing, and, you know, poetry is to say that, you know, we, we are fighting for a world in which many worlds fit. And I think that's the vision that really should win the day. And, you know, I'm, I remain hopeful that that's the future of this planet. What is an uplifting social media account or publication you follow or a book that's been really profound for you? 
like I said, there's the book that I'm reading called Life in Rehearsal. I believe it's called. Let me actually have it. Yeah, Rehearsal for Li- Rehearsals for Living hmm. by Robin Maynard and Leanne Betasamoge or Betasamoge Simpson. I think it'll have it'll land really well. There needs to be more conversations between the Black and Indigenous movement. And the other one I read is I'm I'm doing two books is uh, Ministry for the Future. I have some reservations about certain things in the book, but I think overall, I think it's it's a good book in terms of imagining what a future could look like, even in the face of of climate chaos and catastrophe. Hmm. What personal mottos, mantras, or practices do you engage with to stay grounded? Going back to a conversation I had with Elizabeth Cooklin, you know, she told me once, she's like, you don't even own your own life. You're only here to ensure the coming of the next generation. And I don't think that's a fatalistic <laughs> framing. I think it's a very noble framing coming from her perspective as a Dakota uh, grandmother. Mm. And what are some of your biggest sources of inspiration right now? Really, I mean, this sounds cliche, but I am really inspired by the younger generation of youth movements, the people who are filling the ranks at line three, the people who filled the ranks in the front line at the Dakota Access Pipeline protest, but also those who are in communities that I know that aren't necessarily on social media, virtue signaling every, you know, success and thing that they they do. I've been really humbled to see the uh, kind of outreach in the midst of the pandemic and the mutual aid networks that were set up and created um, to respond to the crises, but also seeing some of them formalized into kind of like longer term movements has been really amazing. Mm. Well, we are coming to a close, but to our listener, you can find The Red Nation and Nick's work at therednation.org. Nick is also on Twitter and Instagram at Nick W. Estes. And Nick, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. It's been a really enriching conversation that I'm looking forward to re-listening to you again. So thank you so much. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? You know, capitalism is a long game. It took centuries for it to unfold and to come to this point. And so when we think about decolonization, it, it's not just an event. It's going to take centuries and a long time to undo. And so play the long game. And remember that you may not see the changes that you hope for in your lifetime. This episode of Green Dreamer was brought to you by listeners like you. To support the show starting from just $2 or to make a larger tax-deductible donation, you can head to patreon.com slash green dreamer. Without a media network or marketing agency behind us, we also rely entirely on word of mouth, so that our extensive archive of conversations can reach and inspire more people. So if you get the chance to share your favorite episodes with friends or to write us a five-star review in the podcast app, this all helps so much and we are so grateful. The song featured in this episode is Mother by Jared Sowen, offered to us by Indigenous Cloud. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell. Our production manager is Tammy Gunn. And I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Take care and I will catch you soon in the next episode. 